closing sentence was just slightly ironic, don't you think? A year from now, no one will ever have to think of this man named Jesus. That was almost 2,000 years ago. And um, today, the name of Jesus Christ is the most um, exciting, uh, controversial name. The name of Jesus stirs up more devotion and interest and curiosity and fervor and zeal and um, debate uh, more than any other name in all of human history. That was just, just slightly inaccurate when the priest said that. In fact, um, my favorite, uh, one of my favorite historical quotes, I guess all quotes are historical, aren't they? But my favorite historical quote is from Napoleon Bonaparte, the, the little Corsican who became the emperor of France. He said once, Alexander, Charlemagne, Caesar, and I have all founded empires. And upon what did we rest our genius? Upon force. But Jesus Christ founded his empire on love, and at this very hour, millions of people would die for him. And so when that priest said, um, a year from now, no one will ever remember his name. Little did he know that 1,800 years later, when Napoleon was emperor, there were millions of people ready to give their lives for him. And little did he know that tonight, 2018, that's still the case, and we're a part of that company that would be willing to give their lives for him. So welcome to our Good Friday service. Thank you for uh, making time to join us tonight. Um, if you brought your Bibles or you have a Bible app on your phone and you can do a low uh, light setting, you can turn them to Matthew chapter 27, or we have a couple big gigantic Bibles up on the screen as well. And what I'd like to do for a few minutes is walk through the scripture passage that our drama team just illustrated. And I just want to point out a few things from this passage, and then we will move into a time in a little bit of receiving communion and making some time uh, to pray. If you take notes on sermons or you, you, you like titles for messages, the title of our Good Friday talk tonight is God Forsaken. God Forsaken. So Good Friday is the anniversary, as we've heard, of the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, his betrayal and his arrest and his trials, uh, Jesus incidentally went through five trials during Holy Week, but um, his betrayal, his arrest, and the first two trials, those occurred on Thursday. So those would have occurred last night. And in church tradition, we call Thursday Maundy Thursday. We call it that because the word Maundy is a Latin word that means command. And it was at the Last Supper on Thursday night when Jesus said, A new command I give you, love one another. So it kicked off on Thursday, but then things really came to a head on Good Friday, and Pontius Pilate who was the Roman governor tasked with making a judgment about Jesus, did not want to give Jesus a death sentence. Pilate realized that Jesus had done nothing wrong. He knew that the, the religious leaders were jealous and insecure, and that's why they had um, delivered Jesus to be executed. In fact, Pilate's wife had a supernatural dream about Jesus, and she actually interrupted Pilate, and she's like, babe, um, she called Pilate babe, too. Um, like, babe, don't have anything to do with this man. I've suffered a lot about him in a dream. Pilate tried to release Jesus, but things were spinning rapidly out of control. A mob was forming, and he realized he had no choice. If he wanted to keep the peace, he had to sentence Jesus 
to an execution. And so that's where we'll pick up the story in Matthew 27, verse 24. And it says, When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, and he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. And all the people answered him, His blood is on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged. And flogging, of course, was that brutal beating and whipping that happened with the the Roman cat of nine tails. It was a whip with multiple leather threads that was embedded with bone and glass and then steel balls that literally would punch holes into the victim's body. And he handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium. They gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns. They set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, and then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said, and they spit on him. And they took the staff and they struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe, they put his own clothes on him, then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha. Doesn't that just sound wicked? It sounds like Mordor or something. Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Uh, Notice that phrase for a second. When they had crucified him. Gosh, we can read that so quickly. It's just three words. They crucified him. Isn't it amazing how we we can... convey the deepest, most unbelievable pain that a human can endure in just a couple of words. It's kind of crazy. We can, we can communicate the deepest of all human aches and pains just so quickly and almost flippantly. Uh, they lost a child. She was molested. They divorced. She went bankrupt. He's still battling addiction. We can communicate these deepest, deepest pains with just a a few simple words. When they had crucified him, uh, when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Have you ever thought about this part of the story? I I know that when we've preached this and you've read it, you've, you've read that, and we know that as Jesus was hanging up there, the soldiers were, were gambling over his robe. But have you ever thought about that? This is unbelievable if you think about this. These soldiers had just crucified him, which means they nailed a human being to a piece of wood. And then after nailing a human to a piece of wood, they're so callous and they're so indifferent, they pull out some dice or something like that, and and they start gambling to see who gets to keep his robe. I mean, have you ever thought about that? How could someone's conscience be so seared and so hardened and so indifferent that you can crucify someone. You could take someone's trembling, shaking hand and 
pound a nail into it and not feel anything? I mean, don't you think that, that nailing human flesh to a piece of wood would affect a person psychologically? You ever just bumped into somebody accidentally? Isn't your first reaction for most of us, oh, I'm sorry, my bad. Have you ever hit somebody, like with your car or, or your fist? You know, it's, it's one thing to defend a person, but, but we were not created for heartless violence. People were made in the image of God. And, and for a person to do physical damage or violence to another person damages the human soul. Um, Amber and Maddie were the biggest wimps when they were growing up. Oh, my gosh. We used to go camping at this gorgeous lake in North Idaho, this big massive lake, and it had a humongous dock that stretched way out into the water. We would play on it all day long. We would swim under it. We would jump off of it. But a couple times, each of them got giant splinters in their foot from this dock. And we had to practically hold them down. And, and I took the, the tweezers and the needle, and they, they wiggled and squirmed and screamed so bad, I could barely get the, the splinter out of their foot. I could barely go deep enough. And, and I know the metaphor breaks down, because I wasn't a hardened soldier executing someone. I was a dad getting a splinter. But if I could barely poke them to get a splinter, how could somebody get to the point when they can actually nail human flesh to a piece of wood and not feel anything. You know, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 says, The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. You know, it's possible for the human conscience to get to a place where it becomes seared or hardened and it doesn't feel things the way it's supposed to feel. Have you ever burned your finger? You ever just kind of lightly burned your finger on something? What happens to the skin when you burn it? It, it hardens. It, it loses its feeling. And, and you know, it's possible for us humans to disobey God so many times or go down paths that are opposite of his plan for us so many times that our conscience begins to get cauterized. It begins to harden. A, a human soul, a human conscience can actually get so hardened that Nazi officers could order the mass execution of Jewish prisoners and then go home in the evening and drink wine and play beautiful classical music as if nothing out of the ordinary had even happened. You know, if... if, if if there are areas of our lives where, where we used to feel guilt or regret over bad choices we were making, but we don't anymore, it doesn't mean that God necessarily got over it or it's not a big deal. It could mean that our conscience has gotten a little bit seared. It could be we've, mean we've gotten a little bit, a little bit hardened. Um, when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. So this was his crime. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. He said he was king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, let him save himself. 
He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. I mean, after all, he said he was the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Um, Oh my God, Jesus is performing the greatest act of love in the history of humanity. Um, On Maundy Thursday, Jesus had told his disciples, there's no greater love than for a person to lay down their life for a friend. And that's what he was doing. He was performing the greatest act of love in the history of humanity. And everywhere he turns, it's just hostility. Um, The soldiers are laughing and gambling and mocking. The high priest, who, who was the teacher of scripture, is mocking him. The people who were just passing by, they paused to to insult him. And even the rebels who were crucified with him mocked him. See, the the thing about crucifixion is when you're hanging in this position and all of your weight is being hung from above, you, you can inhale, but you can't exhale. You have to push down on your feet and if your feet were were nailed to the cross, you had to push onto your nailed feet to lift up so you could exhale to take another breath. So these rebels were, were, were so wanting to insult him that they pushed up on their feet so they could get the words out to criticize him. How could humanity be so cruel? How could human beings get to a place like that? He's offering his life, and everywhere he turns, it's hatred. Except for one bright spot. Um, John tells us in his gospel that at one point Jesus looked out and he saw his mom. Could you imagine in that moment when you're in the worst pain you've ever been in, you are absolutely hopeless, you're literally dying, and you look up and you see your mom. And his mom was standing by his best friend. John abandoned him in the garden, but he came back at the foot of the cross. So there's one bright spot for him. But, but here's the message tonight. Jesus reached a point in the redemptive process when the weight of the sins of the world were placed firmly on him on the cross. And in that moment, God had to judge those sins. And the way God judged them was by turning away. God had to turn away from Jesus. Now, think with me through the sequence of the story. God the Father had been with Jesus every step of the way. God the Father was with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember that Jesus got to a point in his prayer when he he was like, "I, I don't know if I can go through with this. He didn't have the strength to go through with it. So God the Father sent an angel. And this angel came to the garden and poured strength into Jesus so that Jesus could, could, could summon the courage to go through with the plan. God was with Jesus during Jesus' trial. He went through five trials, and oh my gosh, Jesus had so much dignity. He had so much poise and so much strength in his trial. The, the Roman Empire had Jesus on trial, but in the moment of his trial, Jesus turned the tables, and it was the entire world on trial in front of him. In fact, at one point, King Herod, and Jesus never really liked King Herod. King Herod was a, was a, a crook. At one point, he jumps in on the trial, and one of, one of Jesus' interactions came from King Herod. And um, over in Luke uh, chapter 13, verse 31, there was a point in Jesus' ministry when King Herod wanted to kill Jesus. And some people said, you've got to leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus replied, 
go tell that fox. Foxes were, um, not foxy, foxes were considered unclean under Moses' law. And foxes were scavengers. And so Jesus said, you go tell that fox, Herod, I will keep on driving out demons. And I will keep on healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. And it, it just drove Herod crazy. When, when Jesus was on trial before Herod, Herod was kind of happy about it. In fact, let me just read this one to you. Um, in Luke 23, verse 9, when Herod saw Jesus, he was pleased. Because for a long time, he'd been wanting to see him from what he'd heard about him. And he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied Jesus with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. So Herod irritated. He sends him back to Pilate, and Jesus won't even talk to Pilate. And finally, Pilate's like, why won't you defend yourself? Why won't you answer me? Don't you know I have the authority to execute you? And Jesus looks at Pilate, and he says, you would have no authority unless someone else had given it to you. Jesus was so dignified and so strong and so composed, and the Father walked with him through every moment of the trial until this moment when the weight of the sins of the world were placed on Jesus and God the Father finally had to turn away. And it was in that moment, in Matthew 27, 46, when Jesus finally cried out, my God, my God. Now, when he started on the cross, he began by talking to his Father. Um, Luke tells us that the very first words that Jesus said from the cross were, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. So he begins by talking to Father, but when the Father has to turn away, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What comes to your mind when you hear the word God forsaken? What images come to your mind when you hear that term God forsaken? According to Merriam-Webster, God forsaken means remote, desolate, neglected or miserable in appearance or function. Some synonyms of the word God forsaken are wretched, dreary, dismal, depressing, grim, cheerless, bleak, and gloomy. In fact, when you hear the word God forsaken, does it make you think of any of the Western cowboy movies that you've seen? When you, when you think of God forsaken, if you read Louis L'Amour or you read any Western novels, there, there's always a God forsaken town. When I hear the term God forsaken, it makes me think of Clint Eastwood. You know, there's always a town where, in those old spaghetti westerns, where justice never comes to this God forsaken place. And, and what is the town like when it's God forsaken? It's always, it's always dusty and dirty. There's flies buzzing around everybody's head. There's always some old dude in the background building coffins. What, what happens to the women? in God-forsaken towns. They're used, they're abused. What about the men? The men in those God-forsaken towns are weak. They're passive. If there's a sheriff, the sheriff is either AWOL or ineffective. And, and, and the bad guys, oh my gosh, they're the worst. Well, what are some God-forsaken places in our world today? If you think about our recent history, what are some of the places that you would call God-forsaken on our planet. Maybe in recent history, maybe Rwanda, maybe Somalia, 
Maybe places in the Middle East where war never stops. Maybe places where there's genocide or where little girls are captured and trafficked for sex or where children are forced to serve as as slaves. Maybe places where women are oppressed or where tyranny rules. Um, And what about a little closer to home? What, What about the human heart? What about the teenager who is feeling so much pain that they cut themselves just so they feel something a little bit different? What about someone who's battling mental illness and they're so depressed they can barely claw their way into another day? What about heartbreak or financial ruin or bereavement? Um, In the New Testament, the word forsaken means to desert or to leave behind. Can I get theological with you for just a second? Um, God deserted Jesus, right? Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken means to desert, but Jesus was God, right? So God, through Jesus, was deserted. So God himself went to the God-forsaken place. So do you know what that means for humanity? That means there is no place in the world that is truly God-forsaken. That means there's no place on our planet or inside the universe of the human soul where God can't work, where God can't restore, or where God can't heal. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what? Those should be some of our favorite words in the entire Bible. Because those words tell us that there is no place that is truly God-forsaken. Now, I know that theologically. I would pass a quiz if I had to answer that question. I know it intellectually. But listen, I also know this experientially. I don't want to turn this to be about Jessica or me. So without detail, let me just say, we've spent time in some God-forsaken places in our lives. We've lived through some spots and some areas that could have come right out of the wild, wild west. We have felt deserted. We've been left behind. But but you know what else? We've also lived. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is kind of an obscure one. It's Genesis 9, 28. It says this. It says, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. After the flood, so after the devastation of the world, after feeling completely God-forsaken, Noah lived. He, He lived again. There was still a hope. There was still a future for Noah and his family. So here's what I would like us to do tonight. If you're willing, I would like us to direct the prayer emphasis of this service. If you've been around for a few years, you know that on Good Friday, we take a a, a, a fair amount of time to pray. I would like us to pray for the power and the life of God to invade the seemingly God-forsaken places in our world. In fact, um, real quickly, what's another term for Christian? What, what do we call ourselves as Christians? Okay, disciples. And what do disciples do? What, 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 what are we as Christians? We're disciples and we are We're followers of Jesus, right? When Jesus called Peter into service, he said, follow me. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, the apostle Paul said, follow me as I follow 
Christ. As followers of Jesus, we're supposed to go where he goes, right? And where did Jesus go? From the beginning of his ministry until that pinnacle moment on the cross, where did he go? He, he went to the God-forsaken, the lepers, the damaged, the broken, the condemned. Jesus went to them. In fact, let, let me finish here by reading a couple of verses from 1 Peter chapter 3. I want to read you what are, are probably the most confusing verses in all of Scripture. Um, nobody, no matter how smart they are, nobody knows everything that these verses mean, no matter, how, no matter how much they think they do. But let me just read them to you, and let's just read them at face value, okay? In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive in the spirit, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. I don't know everything that this passage may or may not mean, but it sure sounds like Jesus even went to the God-forsaken places that existed before he came to earth. There is no place in our planet that is God-forsaken. And I would love us to leave Good Friday stepping more fully into our role as his emissaries, his ambassadors, his messengers, his carrier of hope for the God-forsaken places. Mm -hmm.